0: Welcome and thanks for joining us. My name is Samuel manuel Director of the Museum of Colour and your host for this series, My Words Donations. As part of the My Words exhibition at the Museum of Colour, we have invited a number of poets to donate objects to our digital collection. These are items that have a real significance to them and their creative journeys. This series is a chance to hear the stories behind those donations. And coming up, we'll be talking with Nick McCoa.
1: Okay, uh, so my name is uh, Nick McCoa. I'm a poet and playwright. I wrote a collection called Kingdom of Gravity, which was my first collection. It composed of uh, about two pamphlets, uh, one which was called the Resurrection Man, which won the Toy Derikot Cornelius C.D. Prize, which means a lot to me because that uh, belongs to the institution called Carve Carnum, which uh, really helped develop me as a writer. Um, I've written a one-man show called My Father and None of the Superheroes, which kind of looks at how when I became a father for the first time, how I tried to figure out what fatherhood was because my father wasn't actively around in my life. Um, I also wrote a play called The Dark because I'm from Uganda, which is about how my mom swapped me out of Uganda during the end of the, the Amin regime. And, uh, yeah, I'm currently working on my second collection, which is at present titled The New Carthagians, which goes back into Uganda, looking at Seven Days, which is uh, the Entebbe hijacking. But I'm looking at it through Basquiat, Icarus and myself. So three characters and I've made them all black and they're all alive. So I brought Basquiat back to life, Icarus back to life, and I am hope I'm still alive. (laughs) So, yeah, that's it, really.
0: So you've talked a bit about your work Nick so for readers who haven't read you how would you describe the way that you write?
1: I mean when I was younger when I was a when I was just full of passion about writing I only I only wrote when I thought I was inspired and uh, when you're a child or when you're a younger person those times are usually at points of crisis so either when you're in love or when you're in pain so those are usually the times I would write. As I got older and I realized this is this isn't just a passion; this is actually something I love doing, or something I have some skill at. You then have to relate to your craft more as a discipline, and I think that's an adjustment because you then have to realize that it's it it's a gift, but it's 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 like a plant. And my my wife's really good at looking after plants. If you don't look after plants, they die or they survive very roughly. So um, I had to kind of tend to it in a different way, and I had to really look at what I was not good at or what I wasn't doing as well as I could do or what I was just coasting with because writing isn't about intelligence. It's not about how clever you are. It's not about how big your vocabulary is. It's not about how good your education was. It's about connection. One of the things I realized in this education, I don't know how it's around the world, but in general in the Western world, poetry isn't really taught as an art. It's kind of discarded to the, at best to the periphery of English language, and even then, when it is studied properly in some kind of way, it's through the lens of white men. And then with that, there's another layer where teachers are scared to teach it. Imagine having being a teacher, and you're scared to teach, you know, a subject like you're a math teacher, scared to teach maths. You'd be like, why are we even bothering? You that's how they teach poetry, which is almost ridiculous. So um, luckily for me. I think I loved language before I understood what language was. Um, and also, I, I I didn't just rely on poets in the curriculum. I like hip hop, which is natural poetry. I like jazz, with natural poetry. I like music, my own languages, my, the way my mum used to talk. My mum used to tell story. I mean, I think my mum's a better storyteller than me, but she would never think so. Like There were times I would literally listen to her on the phone, talking to other people. And the way she would tell a story, she would literally have you in the palm of her hand. Even when she told me off, it was a story. But it would be just it'd be a long story. A and long story. I, a very, very long story. But it was a good story. You'd be like, Yo, this is this is really interesting. Like what you figure figured out. So um I think in the African or the Afro Caribbean experience is natural storytelling. All my friends, their mums, their uncles, their aunts were storytellers. Um, even the way they introduced themselves to you was I wouldn't say theatrical, but it was there were characters in your life, so I guess how I've approached it initially, like with passion, but then I started to approach it as a more like a, a martial art. And um, I'm just trying to get better each year. I don't know if I'm a black belt yet, um, but I'm I've definitely moved up in my belts, if I would say. I don't know if that makes sense.
0: So, when did you know yourself to be a poet?
1: So, um, I mean, there are many examples of that. If I look now, there are echoes when you add them all up you're like oh of course you're always a poet but you can say that in hindsight but um so I I always tell these stories but these are a few so one is when I was six I wrote my first poem ever I was in primary school it was in Camberwell I remember my teacher telling us to write a poem it was a poem about a butterfly Um, my mom's framed that poem so that's when I officially to the outside world wrote a poem then I think I carried on writing poems, I, you know, because my mom says, you know, when I was eight, I wrote a poetry collection. I I, I don't remember that, but she insists, like I put, she put it together. She was got, she was at SOAS. She even tried to show it to her professor. She's like, look, this boy's writing this because she couldn't believe it. Then when I was in boarding school, I went to boarding school in Kenya. My maths teacher died and he kind of took me under his wing. And then, um, he died suddenly of a heart attack and, it really upset me. I remember crying under a tree and then, you know, I kind of prayed. And then I wrote him a poem and there was this girl, she was watching over me and she saw me crying and she pulled the poem out. And then all of a sudden the, the poem was taken and used in the, the yearbook. So that was another kind of calling to be a poet. And then from then on, I was asked by my school to like poetry recitals. When we'd go to church, they will say, Hey Nick, do you want to read a poem? So that that was another example, you know, go further up in my life, my first girlfriends, they'll tell you like, you know, when we used to go movies, I'd be writing them poems on the back of ticket stubs. So, you know, as you can see, it just keeps going on and on. There are these echoes and callings to poetry. And you got to remember that it's particularly in the West, particularly in the UK, there is nothing to tell you that you can make a viable career. So even though these signs kept showing themselves, uh, it's kind of like the, the the green crystal in Superman. It was not, nothing was saying to me, yeah, this is a safe and lucrative path but um, the, the signs just keep popping up and every time I would kind of ignore it it would appear stronger the next time if that makes sense.
0: That makes complete sense and you said earlier about writing from that place of passion so that makes complete sense but we've asked you to donate two objects to the Museum of Colour so I'm curious about how you feel about museums what's your relationship with museums?
1: I mean, they're necessary, but when you think about their original constructions, a lot of times they have archives for the rich to hold their stuff. And often what they're holding is what has been pillaged from other important civilizations and they're making money off of that. So the idea of a museum holding culture, great, you know, but... I think the model needs to change. Is there a way that it can give back to the cultures that it stole from? Is there a way it can acknowledge financially? Because if you're trying to say that we're holding culture, but at the same time, you're destroying or stealing from culture, that's counterintuitive. But uh, the idea of a museum is important because we have to remember, we are what our culture makes us. And oftentimes, you know, particularly for Black people or people of color, a lot of times their histories are erased or or reformatted, particularly uh, women's narratives and, you know, people who do not, belong to the the norm of society they're erased so it's important that we have museums that include these stories whether or not we like them or not it's not about whether we like them it's about look this is who we are take all of us or take none of us
0: that's beautiful all of us or none of us how do you feel about being in a museum
1: (laughs) I I, I guess it means I'm getting old (laughs) I don't know Um, it's a beautiful thing I think Um, we have to leave something behind for those people in the future the world isn't just for us you know, there are people who have died who mean a lot to me and I, and, and what they've left, I've learned from. So I guess this is just the circle of life happening. And this is a museum is one of the ways of holding the circle of life for other people in the future.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. So tell us about your first donation.
1: I guess the first is the Bible. For me as a poet, it's the master poetry book because it does everything that poetry should do. It inspires, it teaches, it goes beyond language. It reveals, it uses simple language, which ironically, a lot of people don't understand. You know, how do you use simple language to convey deep concepts? And I guess God is the master poet. And I think at one time I realized, you know, this is a gift that I've been abusing. So whenever I'm trying to make decisions, the Bible is close at hand. So the first article is the Bible, or my Bible. And it was a gift, by the way. It was a gift from my the pastor who made me realize how important God is, not just as a kind of idea But as a a daily connection, a daily, not just character, but a daily influence in your life, I used to really appreciate not just going to church, but the conversations he would actually, I'd go to his house and would converse about the Bible. And he spoke to me just as a man speaks to another man. And the the fantasticalness of the Bible didn't intimidate him. And he was very honest about who he was and his life and his struggles. And I just appreciate that uh, intimacy and the teachings still sit with me today. So that's why that's the Bible you gave me, and I appreciate it.
0: Ah, so that particular Bible that you have donated is the one that he gifted to you. And so he gifted you more than that physical Bible. He gifted you an increased insight to the notion of God in your life on a daily basis. So, OK, tell us about your second item.
1: So my donation was two Nine Inches by Maxwell, the artist, rare copies that he made available from his albums. And I think he's one of my favorite artists. I used to play his album. He had two albums. There's one called Embrya and uh, I can't remember the first album, but yeah, those, those albums I used to play. But um, one of the best concerts I've ever been to was his concert in Kentish town. And I was sitting in the balcony and he was singing one of his songs and he had his eyes closed. He had his afro. He's, you know, he doesn't have it anymore, but he had his afro. And he had his eyes closed and he was singing a note and he was holding that note. And I looked around the balcony, and it had every kind of human being under the sun. You know, you name it, they were there. So sometimes you were thinking, how I didn't know you were into Maxwell, but yeah, they were into Maxwell. But only that the the balcony was swaying. It was swaying like a I don't know, like a like a ship at sea because everyone was up on their feet. Wow. You know, and, and down below they were up on their feet. And I literally remember feeling like I need to get off this balcony. This balcony is gonna break because it was literally yeah, like oh, it was wow. like um. I don't know if you've ever been on those um, adventure rides and it's going like up and down and you can feel the G-force. Like, I was like, what? The? Like, yes, this... yes. I was like, man. And then he op- he didn't even notice the commotion that was going on because he was just in the tune. And then he opened his eyes and then he burst into tears. And then I just got like, he was so connected to his art form. He didn't even realize how he was moving the crowd. And uh, he, he literally had to stop for about five minutes just to kind of take the emotion in. And I'll... so... Uh, that was a kind of like a really special concert of engagement, and I and I remember. I I think he he literally had to thank the whole crowd because he was just trying to do his best, but he didn't realize his best had hit everybody in such a like a tuning fork, such a tuning fork way. Like there was just joy in the room. It wasn't even admiration. It was just joy.
0: Oh, sounds amazing. Um, do you remember which track it was when that actually happened?
1: I think it was a woman's work.
0: I I was wondering. I was wondering because I mean Maxwell has those amazing falsettos, and not only can he hit it, but he, like you said, he holds yeah. it. And that song is just so he takes that Kate Bush song, and for someone like myself who loves oh Kate original, Bush is
1: the genius. Kate Bush is genius. He, yeah. He,
0: complete we could talk about Kate for the rest of the podcast as far as I can understand but he takes what is already an extraordinary song and he does something so beautiful with it and it's done in such a respectful way but it is so amazing that I could the reason I asked was because I could imagine that hypnotizing a live mm. audience all right what is the next item you have for us?
1: One of the best poets of all time is um, Derek Walcott and it's his book White Regrets which he won the T.S. Eliot Prize for The first poem, and I mean, I love the whole book. I think that the book is actually flawless, but the first poem, you know, is just amazing. And um, I was just like, you know, that, or or, or whatever my version of that is, that's what I'm aiming for. I'm aiming for a book where people are like, yo, this book from beginning to end, and kind of like what I was saying to you about the concert, kind of of like what I was saying to you about Maxwell, kind of like what I was saying to you about the Bible, the connection, how can you write something and from beginning to end, everyone knows you put your heart and soul into it. You know, so that inspiration.
0: What's your next item?
1: So I have two tickets because I used to love going to concert. But I think that the two tickets I showed you were, I think, it was, was it Michael Jackson at Wembley and the other is Prince at Earl's Court?
0: It's Michael Jackson. It's definitely Michael Jackson. And I'm pretty sure because we were all nonplussed by this. The ticket price was twenty six pounds seventy five. Yeah, back in the like day. That. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yes, and and there were howls around the space when we were capturing that image. Like what?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, uh, tell
1: us about that. Yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that day. It was a Michael Jackson concert. I was with my ex girlfriend. We just I think we'd just broken up, but we'd booked to go to the Michael Jackson concert. And it was an amazing day. It was like, uh, it was summer like this, actually. And we had to go to Wembley and it was the old Wembley. And you had to kind of turn up at uh, first thing in the morning because otherwise you wouldn't get in. Uh, so we got there. And by the time we got there and we thought we were early, people were already there. You know, food trucks were already there. And they opened like where the cars come can come through to clean the fields. So we, rushed. we were at the back. Our seats were supposed to be at the back. But we just rushed to the front. And we were literally like maybe 20 feet from the stage. And, um, you know, he had guest performers. So we had to wait until about, you know, just before it gets dark. And, you know, I think it was um, Criss Cross were there. Heavy D and the boys were there. And then just as it gets dark, he appears. And he does that thing where he appears at the back of the arena and the front of the arena, then the side, then the side. And I was like, wow. Like, and I've I've never heard, like, I've been to concerts. I've been to a bunch of concerts, like Prince, you know, Jack Jackson, you know, went Houston, all of these big names, you know. I've never heard a scream like that And I remember When we were going in There was a guy going in With his girlfriend And he was like I hate Michael Jackson This is bullshit I just came here Because my girlfriend likes him The same guy I saw coming out Was like oh, This is Michael Jackson That was amazing this is... And you know When you see Like when you see it on TV You see people fainting You think "Ah, oh, They're just faking it But literally Next to me People were fainting Passing out You know You could just see them People like The the bodyguards wow. You're like This guy is something Like this is ridiculous And the thing is about Michael Jackson he doesn't stop. He sings every tune, no miming, dancing the whole way through. He's on for two hours. The dancers are getting rest. He's moving. And his movements are, there's no, mm, you got that one off, Mike. Mm, your leg's not quite, you know, every move is slick, bang, boom. you're like, yo, how are you moving for two hours straight? Yeah. And you can see, like you say, that passion it's not even it's not even a gimmick. Like when he says about it, he's not playing. Like this is what he does. He could literally go off stage and do another two hours. That's how in tune with his art he is. It was just it was just amazing when I saw. Him, I was just I was amazed. I saw him twice, but um yeah that was that was one of them. Yeah yeah.
0: Okay, that's brilliant. Thank you so much for that donation.
1: Yeah, I mean the the other ticket was Prince, um, which was at Earl's Court, and yeah, I, I remember when you were in school, you know, if you liked a girl, she either liked Prince or she liked Michael Jackson. I liked both. You know, I've seen Prince twice So once I took my wife But before I met her I I went to his court Because that was my thing I used to just I love going to concerts And he's similar to Michael Jackson In the sense Never stops moving But he's doing splits Spin-arounds You're like, yo Playing the piano And he's got his His band is so tight Like, Michael Jackson's band's tight And you know But Prince's band Oh my god Like, he can literally You can see him doing it He's changing the order of things Right. So he might, you know, he can just say, oh, no, we're going to do this tune now. And they go straight into it. Not, don't miss a beat, you know. And then he's got his dancers coming across. Yeah. You know, I think he did. Um, uh, it was a Diamonds and Pearls tour as well. You know, it's like, oh, and it feels the only other thing that felt like a music video was Prince. And one time I went to see Guy in concert, and both of them. It literally you felt like you're on the set of a music video. I was like, oh my God, like these guys take their stuff seriously. Like the whole aesthetic, they don't leave any stone unturned. And it, yeah, it was an honor. Like I I literally wept or well, both of them I wept. But when Prince died, oh man, it broke me. Cause um, I think he's, I think he's, uh, I think he's something special, man. I th- I really do. I think. And, and then now uh, you found out more about him. Is like, he used to do so much for the black community. Like literally he would watch television, see a person, oh, the, the jo- this girl can't go to school. Next day he's sending money to that person. You know, and he's not saying that it was him. He just said, make sure that person gets the money so that they can go to school. And I was like, wow, he's doing that. And it was particularly for Black communities. he do all communities, but particularly for Black communities. He was just looking around, how can I help? And what I've realized is that when you're doing this, thing, you can't just be for your own art and your own benefit. It has also to be for the community. Another person, I mean, who was like that in our community was a guy called Ty. He was the same way. It wasn't just about his music. You know, I mean, even oh gosh, they want say. It. So even like for him, I remember like he was the first person I saw when I went to perform as a poet. The first performance I did outside of kind of safe spaces, it was at Apples and Snakes, and he was the compare. And he was the first poet I saw. I was like, yo, or, I thought he was a poet because he did a poem called Hercules, which was actually a song, but he he did Hercules, and I was like, wow, this is amazing. I was like, yeah, I want to do this for the rest of my life. You know, but he was always for committee And every time I used to perform on open mics, a lot of times he would be in the background and he'd always come up to me and he would say, yo, man, well done. And I know he didn't have how to do that.
0: Ty was amazing. And for listeners who may not know, he was a musician. We sadly lost him during COVID. And he was an amazing person. And as you said, a very generous person. I remember booking him many years ago for a showcase that, was being presented and it wasn't just what he did but it's the way that he engaged with others that I think made Ty who he was.
1: I met a friend the other day who was a good friend of his and he said to me because he used to live in um, in Wandsworth there in the, um, his flat I've been there a few times and he said there was a lady there who was living next door and she had like a, a kid who didn't have enough books so he went and sold some of his records and, and got the community to buy books for the child yeah. so that the kid could have the books he needed to learn properly
0: that's Ty that's who we were. that's Ty yeah that's who he yeah. was oh Nick it has been an absolute pleasure listening to you describe the items that you've donated thank you for donating them but we have one final donation from you which is your poem so which poem have you chosen to donate to the museum
1: Going back to that, what I was talking to you about, the work I'm working on, it's a, an interaction between myself, Basquiat, and Icarus. I wrote it while in, during COVID. Uh, it's an important poem because it makes me realise, there's always a poem that kind of makes you realise what the collection could be. And it's based on one of his paintings of the same name called Hollywood Africans. And it's him, Z, and his, like so it's his best friend. So I'm um, using his paintings as kind of a form of a praxis to kind of, talk about my story and I'm creating a kind of new black myth so I'll read that to you if that's okay Hollywood Africans the only thing that was certain was that it was June and we had split a pepperoni pizza between us an ultraviolet light lit the room Basquiat channel surfing looking for cartoons while Icarus prodded the canvas to see if the image fit precisely in the frame he was certain that someone had broken in I'm getting set to coast toward the front door when the girl of my dream walks in now. I have to make some lame excuse about how. I'm off to the bodega to get some smokes and how. I have a craving for meat. I'm bound by this habit. She just smiles. I smile back. Then a voice from the back of my throat says, You can come with. Cut to me and her at a stop sign. I don't want to play the right game the wrong way. In the silence that has followed us from the front door, I swat a crown of mosquitoes above her head. There is no water, but I can smell the ocean. The man at the store is sweeping the street, at which point I ask her name. I've only ever seen her in a gallery with a glass of Prosecco in her hand. I watch the man watching us in that night, in that long summer. She pulls out some ice cream from the freezer and adds it to the bill. The pulp of her lips are flint and fire. The birds are sand, and so is the wind. The rest of the night falls away. In another magic, she calls me by my original name. It is difficult to know what to walk away from. She asks why my eyebrows are raised. We are sitting on the top of a bark bench watching time. We are a part of it. Right here in New York City. This is where the road delivers us towards the edge of difference. Butterscotch drips from my fingers and falls to the tarmac. A beautiful suspension. Yet then I, or you, or whoever decides to look, hand rolls a cigarette as we rummage through our back pockets for a light.
0: Thank you to Nick McCullough for being part of our exhibition and donating to the Museum of Colour. To view the donations photographed by Sharon Wallace and the portraits by Derek Akembo, head to www.museumofcolour.org.uk where you can explore the rest of the My Words exhibition and discover our growing digital collection. My Words Donations is presented by me, Samuel manuel and is produced by Stella Sabin for the Museum of Colour. Further episodes of this series are available across all podcast platforms, where you can also listen to our previous project, Respect June. The music you have heard in this series is by the fabulous Randolph Matthews. You can listen to more of his work at www.randolphmatthews.com. My Words is supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, Arts Council England and the Foyle Foundation. Museum of Colour is incubated at People's Palace Projects based at Queen Mary University, London. Thank you for listening.